Let's hear the word of God. We read from the first letter of John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. God grant that we shall be doers of the word and not hearers only. Good, well, good evening everyone. It's great to have you here uh, for part four of six parts in this spiritual battles um, series and this is what we're looking at tonight. Um, just going to give us a few words of introduction and then I'm going to pray a little later. Um, so as I shared this morning on the slide, these are some of the questions we're going to be addressing tonight. Questions that you have asked Um, Questions I think are important to ask. 
And I hope that these will help us tonight. So just take a moment to reflect on those questions so you can see where we're going tonight. I don't know if you can cast your mind back to last week. And I made two sort of uh, quite big statements last week, which I hope have sort of hung in our minds and our hearts a little bit. The first one was this, the devil hates it when you or I pray. I don't know what your experience of prayer has been this week off the back of hearing about prayer being a spiritual battle. But as I shared, uh, always finding it a battle. It was a particular battle this last week. Um, probably no surprise. The devil hates it when we pray. The other statement I made was that no one of us will ever wander into kind of fervent prayer. We have to decide we want to be prayerful people and we have to give our very best time to it. If you take those two statements, you could mirror them with two equally true statements tonight as we think about this issue of loving one another. Just as the devil hates it when we pray, so too the devil hates it when we're united and when we love one another. All the devil wants to do is to break up unity and to cause frictions that we don't love one another. The devil hates it when we pray, the devil hates it when we're united. And just as you or I will not slip into fervent prayer, equally, we mustn't assume that we will just slip into unity as a church. Unity is not a a given in a church. Unity has to be worked at. It's a gift from God. But it, it requires each of us as members of a church to take responsibility for unity. And we have to think carefully about that. Now, on your... Uh, And I just want to make the point that unity in a church is a very real spiritual battle. I hope we'll see that as we journey through this passage tonight. So I'd like us to pray together and pray that God would humble us and show us our hearts that we can contribute towards the unity of the church that God longs for. So let's be quiet for a moment and I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, we... I'm sure have all experienced the joys of unity where you bring together people from very different walks of life and you unite us in the gospel and we love you for that. But no doubt too, there are many people here uh, where we've all been hurt by one another in different ways, where we find it hard to love brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray tonight that your spirit would open our eyes to see where we're at fault in that. Open our eyes to see how the gospel can help us to love when love is not deserved or where we don't feel like loving so please transform our hearts tonight and please help us as we journey through this passage together amen great you've got a handout if you haven't got one of these handouts then um stick a hand up and somebody irene was handing them out so have you got any spares have they all gone yeah, thanks, Irene. Just keep your hand up. It'd be quite good to have one because um, we're going to do some really practical stuff later on. What I'd love you to do if you've got one of these is turn to the inside page, effectively page three, and you'll see a set of boxes. I want to explain these boxes to you, and uh, the application of tonight is going to be your work as you fill in these boxes, either in your mind or on paper, okay? Don't look scared. Because you're sitting around people and perhaps to avoid embarrassment, don't write any person's name in these boxes. Maybe just write the first letter um, of their name. Uh, Or if that's too obvious, then write the first letter of their nickname, as long as it's not rude. Um, I want you to think of four different people in this church, okay? The first person in that first box, I want you to think and write the initial of their name. A kind of best friend, the sort of person, if you walked in the door on a Sunday morning and you saw them, you would naturally make a beeline for them. Because you just love them. You think they're wonderful, and they're the sort of person you would always deliberately seek out to speak to on a Sunday. If there's no one like that in the church, <laughs> then tell me and we'll pray for you. But just, just an initial down someone who, who's your kind of best friend within the church, who you really do love. Okay, that's the first one. 
forgive the, the titles, they're just a little bit arbitrary, just to give a few categories. I don't, so they're not literal. The next one is, uh, think of a person in the church who, in a sense, is a sort of a random, in the sense they're a, a brother and sister in Christ. You know them by name, you've talked to them before. Um, you don't dislike them, but you don't sort of love them as your best friend. If you saw them across a room, you wouldn't necessarily seek them out on a Sunday, but they're just a brother and sister in Christ who's in the church and you know. Just jot down their name. Okay, box three. I want you to do this seriously, though. I want you to think of a person in the church who's hurt you in the past. Either someone who's just said something that's niggled at you, and if you're really honest, it's still in your heart. It's just niggling away. Or someone who just irritates you a bit. They just rub you up the wrong way. Um, they often say things are a bit socially awkward, and you find them difficult. Uh, it doesn't have to be an overly negative thing, but just jot down the initial of someone who you find a bit annoying in church. You can put me if that's me. That's no problem. Okay. And then I, I, I do use this slightly reservedly. I, I think that using the, the term enemy of anyone in the church is not what we should be doing. But it, I mean it in the sense of right down there, the one person who you find it hardest to love. It doesn't have to be an enemy. It could be your spouse. It could be that it's just really hard to love your spouse. It could be really hard to love a friend. But just right down there, someone who, in a sense, is a sort of spiritual enemy. You, you just have to dig really deep to love them, okay? And those initials we're going to come back to. And, and when we come to the application, the reason that's in the middle is because the corresponding page we're going to be using to apply. So I want you to hold that thought. So you've got four names there, or four nicknames, or four made-up people if you don't want to do it. There's a great verse that sums up where we're going tonight. Make every effort to live in peace with all people and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, 14 and 15. It's easy in church, isn't it, to be critical it's easy to be critical of other people, probably not so often critical verbally, because we're actually not very good at confrontation, but it's easy to be critical in our hearts towards people, really easy. It's easy to be critical of leadership with all the faults that we can make. It's easy to be unwilling to listen, isn't it? It's easy to just sweep things under the carpet and pretend that they don't matter, but if you're really honest with yourself, those things you sweep under the carpet niggle away in your heart and do affect your relationships with at least the annoying person or the enemy, as it were in your grid it's easy to be touchy in church isn't it to, to have, a, have a short fuse and not be able to bear with one another's burdens maybe bear with another person if they are your burden it's difficult it's actually quite easy I often get caught myself being critical of other brothers and sisters in Christ it's very easy and I'm sure we all get caught off guard but we're going to look at this wonderful letter a little part of it and actually next week uh, we're going to be moving on back into 1 John chapter 2. But to set the scene, because we're sort of jumping in here uh, in 1 John, just want to help us to see that the letter of 1 John is primarily a letter written to encourage um, the early Christians. It's a letter that focuses on our assurance. What does it mean that God loves me? And there are some key themes, which you'll see back now on, on page one, which you might want to jot down. Um, we're back on page one if you'd like to write notes. A few themes that will help set the scene for what we're looking at tonight. One of the themes in the book of 1 John is the idea of abiding or remaining in the love of God. Throughout the five chapters, it comes up 24 times. This idea of abiding or having a close relationship with the living God. So that's one big theme. 
The second big theme that comes up over 30 times is the use of names like uh, friend or beloved or brother or sister, all different frames that are sort of used interchangeably to describe your brothers and sisters in Christ, to describe each other. It might be hard as you look around this room to think, that person is my brother or sister in Christ. That person is my beloved. But from a theological point of view, if you've put your trust in Christ and so have they, that is what we are to one another, even if we wish it weren't true. Brothers and sisters. And the last theme, which we want to focus on, over 50 times in five chapters, you get this whole theme of love. Love, love, love. It comes up 50 times in five chapters. And do you notice in chapter 4, we get it three times. Go back to chapter 4 in 1 John. You get it as a command. Have a look at verse 7. Let us love one another. Uh, The phrase phrase there translated, let us, isn't hugely helpful. It's literally, we should. So it is a command. It's not a sort of suggestion, if you fancy it, love each other. It's a command saying, let us. We should love one another. So in this chapter, there's a command to love. There's also, notice, an obligation to love. Have a look at verse 11. Uh, We ought to love one another. There's an obligation, if you are a follower of Christ, that we ought to love one another, however difficult it should be. So there's this command, there's an obligation, and then in verse 12, there's a statement, if we love one another, dot, 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 and the implication is worked out. So this is a chapter that is calling us to love. And I'm sure you'll agree and see it as kind of common all the way through the scriptures. The Bible teaches that we ought to love one another. That's an obvious thing. But the question I really want to drill down at to get very practical tonight is why? And in one sense, that's a very simple answer to that question. But we're going to look in this chapter to see what it teaches us about why we should love one another. And the first thing, which is now on page four of your handout, so if you turn to the back, this chapter teaches us that we should love one another because God is love. Do you see in verse seven, love comes from God? In other words, God is the source of all love. Think of even a person who doesn't know God as their Lord and Savior, but still has the ability to love. God in his grace grants people the ability to love. All love comes from God. But notice too, a statement about who God is. It's not just that love comes from God. Notice uh, verse 8 and in verse 16, God is love. Probably not a bigger or more profound statement that you could spend time reflecting on this week. God is love. We mustn't make the mistake that this is a phrase that's saying uh, God has an attribute of love. In other words, God has the ability to love. This is more in the sense of his being. He is love. God cannot be anything but loving. And you have to grapple with this because it means that God in judgment is just as loving as God in his saving grace. It's not an easy truth to reconcile. But because God is love, it's not just something he does, it's something he is. Therefore, all of the actions of God are loving. And we need to reflect on that because it's only by the indwelling presence of God's spirit in our life that we're able to love as God calls us to love. Not just love people who are lovable, not just love people we choose to love, but love, love, love everybody particularly brothers and sisters in the church who we find it difficult to love or wish we didn't have to. So the first reason this this chapter gives us to love is because God is love, not just in his actions, in what he does, but in his being, who he is. Maybe if you want to reflect on that further this week, you could take some time to just get a bit of paper and write the words, God is love. 
and just sort of play around with different words, different experiences in your own life of what that looks like for you. It's an incredible truth, isn't it? God is love. But notice how it goes on. We love because God is love. We also love because God first loved us. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed, literally revealed his love to us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. One of the amazing things about the love of the God of the Bible, the living God, is it's not an abstract love. So much love in our culture is superficial, isn't it? So much love is passive and actually can be quite selfish. But when you look at the love of God, it's not an abstract principle. We don't talk about God's love in the abstract. We talk about God's love in a very concrete sense. God does love. And notice verse 9. His love involves great self-sacrifice. He sent what? He sent his one and only son. If God could give us anything, he would always only ever give us his very best. And when he sent his son from heaven to this world, he sent his very, very best love. It's not in a sense, there's no sense in which God withheld some of his love when he sent his only son. He sent his very best. And notice where he sent his very best. Verse 9. Into the world. The world in, in the writings of John means different things. In this context, it's speaking about the badness of the world. His very best sent to the mess of this world, to the brokenness of our communities, to the brokenness of your heart and my heart. That is how he shows his love. So his love is not an abstract principle. And then notice how it goes on in verse 10. He says, this is love. If you want to know what love is, don't look at the way that you love, because it will be imperfect love. Look at the way that I have loved you. And it's a perfect love. Define love not by your definition of love. Define love by God's definition of love. And finally, notice how he shows us his love, verse 9. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, this is Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Christ died for us. And you see it in verse 9. This is how God showed or revealed his love to us. But the amazing thing is, when Jesus hung on the cross, that wasn't just a demonstration of the love of God. You don't look at Jesus on the cross and say, wow, what an amazing example of love. Look what he's prepared to do. The cross is always more than a demonstration. It's also effectual. Do you see the difference? I don't just look at the cross and go, wow, he shows me he loves me. At the cross, it actually achieves something that gives me the ability to be loved by him. Because he sends his one and only son into the world as an atoning sacrifice. That's a phrase that speaks about bringing together two parties. God and broken people come together at the cross. So when you look at the cross, yes, it's an amazing demonstration of the love of God. But it's more than that. It actually brings you to God. And that's an astonishing truth. Because anyone, in a a sense, could die on a cross. And it would be a great example of love, perhaps. But he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And that is why his death was effectual, not just a demonstration. And you see this again in verse 19, don't you? We love because he first loved us. I think it's an astonishing truth to think of the fact that God loved you when you didn't love him. And he loves you when you don't love him. Because he is love. He cannot not love you. 
There's not a single person in this universe who God says, I do not love that person or that person is too far from me to be able to love them. Because God is love. And he's shown us his love. These are very sort of familiar truths, but we we do well to slow down and reflect on them. To reflect on the depth of the love of God and the breadth of the love of God. And that's what we see in this passage. But finally, look at the third thing we see, love, because this is how God's love is made alive in you. There's a couple of uh, puzzling phrases that are repeated, verse 12 and verse 17. Uh, No one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. And here's the phrase, and his love is made complete in us. And you get it again in 17. This is how love is made complete among us. And at first reading, it seems quite confusing, doesn't it? What do you mean love can be completed? Are Are you saying that... Jesus' love for us was not complete. And then when we love one another, that kind of completes or fills up his love. But that's not what it's talking about. I think what it's talking about is that the love of God that was first demonstrated through God sending his son Jesus into the world to die on a cross is now revealed in part through the way that God's children love one another. Because what God does by his spirit is he grows within you and me both the desire to love and the ability to love. When God calls us to love one another, and as you think about your boxes, maybe the person who annoys you or the sort of enemy as it were, God doesn't call you and I to love these people by just trying harder to love them. He grows within us both the desire and the ability to be able to love a person who we find unlovable. And it's in this sense that God's love is made complete. In other words, as God's love transforms my heart and then that love flows out to other people, that's how God's love is made complete. Because his love is meant to work through his people. And that's what the language of abiding is, particularly here in verse 16. If we abide in him, or whoever abides in him, in love, abides in God, and God abides in them. It's talking about this joined-up relationship When I know the living God and I've been so transformed by his love, that is the love that changes my heart, that gives me the ability to love people who I don't find lovable. Just trying hard to love people is never enough because we'll never be able to love like that. But as God's spirit changes us on the inside, he increasingly gives us that ability to love. And it's his love that will increasingly shape the way that we love one another. It's astonishing the love of God, isn't it? If that truth ever becomes familiar to you and doesn't wow you, go back to the scriptures, look again at what Christ did on the cross. Because his love is magnificent. It's a love that so many people reject, but it's a love that changes everything. We love because he is love. We love because he first loved us. And we love because this is how his love is made complete in us. We'll turn to page two in your handout. I'd like to just push us a little bit on this. I think this passage is teaching us that if we settle as a church family for anything less than this, if we as individuals or as a group ever want to withhold love from one another, then actually we're denying the gospel. That's hard to hear. Have a look at verse 19. John is strong here. He says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. If I claim to love God, but I hate my brother and sister, 
He's a liar. It's very strong, isn't it? For whoever doesn't love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. This isn't talking about the battle within our hearts to love people who we find difficult. It's talking about a refusal to love. It's, it's all saying to God, you've said that these are my brothers and sisters, but I refuse to love her. And I refuse to love him. And he's challenging us on it. He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. And actually, it's even stronger if you flip back to chapter 3 and look at verse 10. Because John there has said that the true children of God love their brothers and sisters, which by implication says that if we refuse to love brothers and sisters, then we have to ask the hard question, am I a true child of God? Francis Schaeffer wrote this book in 1972, The Church Before the Watching World. It's quite a famous little book. He says on the back, the church is constantly on trial before God and before the world. The church claims to be God's representative. By its deeds and words, it should therefore reveal to all men something of the character of God who is there, something of God's love, and simultaneously something of God's holiness. And he talks in this book about love being the final apologetic. Apologetics is to do with defense of the gospel. And he's saying love at the end of the day when everything's stripped away is our final defense. Because as people out there in the world look in at the church, do they see a community of people who love each other? And if anyone came as a visitor and came into this church, would they see a group of people who love each other, really love each other? I think I've said it before when we were doing some evangelism training and said slightly provocatively, but if you took this church out of this village, would it make a difference? I'm not making a great statement that it wouldn't. We do loads of wonderful work in this community and there's lots of unseen work. But if you took Long Crendon Baptist Church out of the village and it didn't ultimately make a difference to our village, we have to ask big questions about the way that we are failing perhaps to love each other and maybe love our community. Wasn't it Jesus himself who said in John's Gospel, chapter 13, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What a wonderful thing it would be for someone who's cynical, who doesn't believe in God, who's cynical of the church, to in some way come in contact with someone from this church or even come into this church and just see such radical love that you can see everyone sitting side by side as brothers and sisters in Christ. And they look at it and go, how is that possible? And friends, the answer is it's only possible because of the love of God. And we need to be praying that we would ever more grow to be a loving community that welcomes everybody. That would be a great challenge for us. Well, let's get practical in our last few moments. Um, This won't be easy, but I want you to go back to your boxes on page three, okay? And what we're going to do is I think there are three things I'd like to encourage us with tonight to apply to our boxes, to these people Uh, in the church. We need to think about how the cross applies to these relationships. We need to think about how prayer applies to these relationships. And we we did think about that last week in this talk on prayer being a spiritual battle. And then I want to encourage us to move towards or step towards people who we find it difficult to love. So let's work through this together. First of all, as you reflect on your boxes, your names, Look at the cross. Why do we need to look at the cross? Here's something I've reflected on this week, which has really moved me. 
when you and I stand at the foot of the cross, it's a completely level playing field, isn't it? You can take two people from any walk of life, from the richest, most famous, most successful person to the poorest, nobody of nobodies. But when they stand at the foot of the cross, they are the same. It's a completely level playing field. Nobody is superior before the cross. And so nobody can claim to be superior in the presence of God. So one of the ways to help us to love people who we find difficult is to remind ourselves of the cross. Because at the cross, we're all the same. We come before the Lord God broken. So have a look at your boxes. Think about your best friend in your top left-hand box. Do you know you don't love them just because you find them lovable? Thank God for that person. God blesses each of us with very special friends who will be a particular friend to us through our lives. And it's a wonderful thing to look at the cross and thank God for the amazing love that he's shown your friend to enable them to love you like they do. Or what about the kind of random, the person in the church who you know by name, you would talk to, be friendly with, but aren't a close friend? One of the great truths as you look through the letter of, of 1 John is, as I said at the beginning, lots and lots of repeats of this phrase, beloved or brother, sister. Maybe as you look at the cross and then you think of who's in that second box, just remind yourself, that is my brother and my sister in Christ. They're not just another person who makes up the numbers at church. Which means, just as I would make a beeline on Sunday to speak to my best friend, great thing to do, would I make a conscious effort to speak to somebody else? Because they are my brother, so spiritually speaking, they are just as important as my best friend. I think it would be good if we all made more of an effort, perhaps, in seeking out the people we don't know so well. Because spiritually speaking, they are one, brothers and sisters. Now think about that annoying person, the person who's just upset us or, or frequently just says things or acts in a way that just kind of winds you up. We all have people like that. As you think of that person's name and you think of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, what do you think he would have thought about the annoying person? Do you think he hung on the cross and go, well, I'm here for everyone but the annoying person? When he hung on the cross, he thought of me in all my ways that I annoy him. And he loved me. So whether it's this person that annoys you, look at the cross and say, but God loves them. And so he calls me to love them. And then perhaps the hardest one, think of that person who, deep in your heart, has really hurt you, really hurt you. And maybe it's just unspoken in the church. Maybe you've never dealt with it. And think of that verse I quoted earlier, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. If he would die for us while we rejected him, we've got no right to withhold love from a brother and sister, however much an enemy we might see them as. And that might mean, and we'll come to it later, moving towards that person, perhaps for the first time, and we'll come to that. Just want to pause for a moment and pray. And I particularly want you in your mind to pray quietly in your heart, thinking of the person in box four. I'm just going to give you a moment to Pray in your heart that God would give you the ability to love the person who's most hurt you. Just take a moment to do that now. Lord God, we lift these people to you, these people we find so difficult to love. And we cannot love them by trying hard to love them. We can only love them when we recognize how much you have loved us while we were your enemy. Lord, please, maybe for the first time, would you start that healing work in our heart that would teach us to love 
person who we find so difficult to love, the person who's hurt us so deeply. Please change our hearts and help us to help each other to love our enemies. Amen. So you've got your four boxes. We're looking at the cross, and you can maybe go away and reflect on how the cross helps you to love the different people. I also want to encourage us to pray for people in our boxes. Um, we looked at this a bit last week, but sin will choke your prayer life. When, when bitterness grows up within us, it chokes our prayer life. If you have a Bible, just flick back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 is one of the wonderful chapters in the Bible that talk about Christian unity. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 to 27, each of you must put off falsehood and teach, uh, teach truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. When there's disunity in the church, when there's a withholding of love from one another, this is one of the wonderful ways that we give the devil a foothold. It's so, so destructive. And the thing that's most destructive often isn't the great sort of fallout. It's just the little niggles in church life, which just cause us then for months and months and perhaps years just to avoid that person. But there's this unspoken bitterness in our heart towards them. And it talks here, don't let this bitter root come up among you and do not give the devil a foothold. Uh, some of you will have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, uh, a pastor and a theologian during uh, Nazi Germany. He wrote this wonderful book called Life Together. If there's ever a person to learn from in terms of how to love our enemies, he was writing and, and ministering in a context where uh, Nazi Germany was at its height. And he had to learn how to love his literal enemies who were killing his people. Listen to what he says in this wonderful little book, Life Together. A Christian fellowship lives and exists for the intercessions of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer hate or condemn a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble they cause me. Their face, which was once strange and intolerable to me, is transformed in prayer into a brother or sister for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. This is the happy discovery of a Christian who begins to pray for others. And he goes on and says, Prayer for others is like a purifying bath into which individuals and the church family must enter into every day. As you look at your four boxes, I want you to go away and, and spend some time reflecting on this. How could you pray for each of the people in those boxes? And specifically, spend some time asking God to help you to know, how can I pray for person in box four? Uh, I find this really difficult, but if I was to share, I haven't got time tonight, but if I was to share some stories, some of the most uh, liberating experiences I've had in my life with relationships with other people, particularly people who have really hurt me, has come through praying for them. Because as I pray for these people, it, there's this amazing release in your soul when you give over that burden of relationship to God. So I'd really encourage you, as hard as it is, pray this week that God will give you the grace to love your enemies. And finally, to close, we want to look at the cross, how they apply to these relationships. We want to pray for these different relationships. But here's the last one, and perhaps in some ways this is the hardest. I want to encourage us to move towards people who we find difficult to love. 
Uh, Here's something uh, Bonhoeffer spoke about that I've reflected on in recent weeks and has been really challenging. He says, sometimes the people of God will be a great disappointment to you. And if you don't accept that, then you'll always struggle with church. Sometimes the people of God will be a great disappointment to you. And if you don't accept that, you'll always struggle with church. And he says, and I quote here, whoever loves their dream of Christian community will destroy it. But whoever loves those around them will create community. If we build in our mind a picture of church being this perfect place where we'll never hurt each other, where we'll never get rubbed up the wrong way, where we'll never have to rub shoulders with people who are difficult, we'll build this picture up and church will fail us. And we'll think that the church has failed us, we'll think God has failed us. But rather than focusing on the perfect illusion we have of church, better to focus on the active decision to love. And then we'll build the sort of community that Bonhoeffer is speaking about. It's so easy, isn't it, to isolate ourselves. Uh, In one way, it would be to withdraw from church altogether. Uh, A more common way would be to just isolate ourselves from certain individuals in the church or not move towards people and be really honest with them when they've hurt us. As you look at your four boxes, I want to encourage you to go home and think of these two questions. Where can I initiate forgiveness? Where someone's hurt me and deep down I'm actually bitter towards them. Where can I go towards someone and just say, you really hurt me that day when you said this, but I want to forgive you. Be a really good thing, even tonight if you could do that. Where could you initiate forgiveness, but also where could you initiate repentance? Where could you step towards the person you know you've hurt, where there's just this unspoken friction? Move towards them and just say... I really feel convicted that I want to ask for your forgiveness. They're really, really hard things to do, but it's unbelievably powerful when we ask for forgiveness and when we give forgiveness and it builds unity. Well, as we close, I asked at the beginning this statement that as Christians we're called to love, but the question we were addressing all through tonight is why? And I hope this passage helps us to see perhaps a little bit more. We love because he loved us. We love because God is love. And we love because that is a way that God's love is made alive in us. One of the amazing graces of God is to put together people who are different, who naturally will rub each other up the wrong way, and then decide to love them. That is one of these great, the Bible would talk about being the sanctifying work of God, transforming our heart. If this church was only full of top left-hand box category people, people who are my best friends, it would be very, very easy to love everyone. But when the church is full of people in all those boxes, I'm forced to love people I find difficult to love, and that's when I start to really love. But friends, we'll only love like that when we accept the love that God has shown us, and that's why we're going to turn to the Lord's table tonight to reflect on the incredible love of Jesus when God sent his only son into the world to die for us. So I pray as Neil comes up to lead us in this time that as we share in the bread and the wine together it will be a visible way that together we seek out this unity that we long for in this church. May God bless us with these words tonight.